Welcome to Love Love Tennis, where tennis talk starts. I'm Ruth Dobson Torres, host of the Love Love Tennis podcast. The goal of this episode and all future episodes is to promote the sport of tennis by sharing diverse and interesting opinions and voices about all things happening in the tennis world today. So let's get started. Welcome, everybody, to the Love Love Tennis podcast. I'm really excited about today's guest, and let me tell you a few things about her before we get started. She is originally from Winneka, Illinois, where she was active in high school sports growing up. She became an NCAA Division I college tennis player, playing on the women's tennis team at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill for two years. Since then, she is a mother of four children, two young women and men who are currently competing in college and high school sports, and she is a coach of competitive swim teams in the Northbrook, Illinois area. She currently competes herself as an Ironman triathlete. She is also a positive performance certified mental training coach and visualization specialist, and she is a trained instructor of mindful sport performance enhancement. She's also trained in youth mental health first aid. And last, she is the founder of TranscendMentalTraining.com, a company focused on helping individual athletes as well as athletic teams overcome their mental barriers and renew their competitive performance. With that said, welcome Amy Oliphant. All right. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you. We are excited that you're our Love Love Tennis podcast guest today. Um, And to start us off, we understand that you are a native of Illinois and have spent your life up until now surrounded by competitive athletics. So which sports did you play growing up? And when did you first realize that you truly love, loved the the game of tennis? Yeah, so um, growing up, I loved all sports. I was um, was a huge tomboy. So all I wanted to do was play sports. Um, so I, I basically did everything, softball, tennis, um, basketball, soccer, swimming. Um, and then like every year I started to drop a sport and it really came down to swimming and tennis. And, um, I decided that I wanted to play a sport in college. So, and I knew that I was going to have to focus on one sport. So I, um, I quit swimming in eighth grade and began to focus, uh, all of my energy and time on tennis. Gotcha. Well, how did you, can you tell us how you ended up playing at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill? And which years were you there? So I graduated from Carolina in 1992. um, But like you said in the intro, I only played tennis my freshman and sophomore year. Um, And I always wanted to play sports at the highest level I could. So um, so in eighth grade, like I said, I, I focused on tennis and kept playing and through high school and whatnot. And then um, when it came, came time to go to college, I um, was recruited by a few schools. North Carolina recruited me, but I thought that I really wanted to go out to California and play out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
Carolina was the last school I visited, um, and it was my recruiting trip. And after that recruiting trip, it was the only place I wanted to go and ended up being the only place I applied to. Awesome. Well, (laughs) my being, the fact that I'm a North Carolina native, I appreciate that you did make that decision. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was was definitely love at first sight, for sure. (laughs) Well, let me ask you, um, on your company's website, transcendmentaltraining.com, you share that you were, quote, that, quote, athlete in college. For our listeners who haven't visited your website yet, can you explain what you meant when you labeled yourself that way and share more details about the type of athlete that you were when you were playing tennis in college at Chapel Hill those first two years? Yeah, so when I labeled myself as that athlete, um, that probably comes from like my coaching perspective. There's always athletes that I watch that not necessarily are athletes that I work with, but I have a few of those as well, that they've just, they've got all the talent and they've got all the skill and, you know, you look at them and they look great and you just wonder like, why can't they get their game to the next level? Um, And that was me. So I was um, looking back on it. I feel like I was definitely an underachiever. I had a ton of talent. I had a ton of skill, but I could never just get to that next level. And probably it's hindsight. Maybe I knew it then, but, you know, it was my mind that was keeping me from being the best that I could be. Um, I was basically a train wreck and a mental midget. So (laughs) I had terrible self-talk. I had a terrible temper. Um, I just, I literally was just a mess. And at the time, you know, mental training and mindset work really didn't exist. So it was just starting to evolve. And it was probably something that I could have really have used at the time. So I think that probably does have a lot of, uh, has a lot of, um, is a lot of the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing now as well. Gotcha. Yeah, it's so interesting to hear you say that. And that now looking back, you feel like you've got, knowledge and, and, uh, you know, information that could have helped you then. And maybe you would have played four versus two, um, years, but continuing on after college, um, you obviously got married, started a family, became the mom of four kids. Um, so I'm, I'm guessing that your days as a tennis player after college probably came to somewhat of a pause during that time. And I wanted to ask you, when did you get into coaching and at what point did you recognize how, how important the mental side of training is for athletes and that you wanted to center your coaching approach around mental training for athletes? Yeah. Um, so I, you know what? I, coaching was something that I've always done. So like even when I was playing um, at a high level um, in high school, I coached the summers. I worked with like the learn to play um, little kids in our park district um, every summer between college. Um, even after I decided to um, not continue pl- to play at Carolina, I went out to California and I taught at a tennis camp um, there. And then when I graduated, um, I wasn't sure what I really wanted to do with my life. So I the fallback was to go back out to California and become a teaching pro at the same camp um, for adults that I was doing working at um, as a counselor for the kids. So um, I pretty much have been coaching all my life. Um, so I coached until I started to have my family. Right. And then after, and then after children, um, I started swimming again to back to get back into shape. 
and I fell fell in love with the sw- with swimming. And my daughter started to swim, so I was at the pool all the time. And um, it just kind of was a natural progression. So I started coaching. So um, you know, and I consider myself a life learner. So. And I always, like I said, I kind of always knew that it was my mental side and my mental toughness that kept me from being the best that I could be. So I kind of just started looking into mental training and mindset coaching or mindset work more to help my kids um, at the time and Mm -hmm. um, was always looking for new techniques and strategies to help me with the athletes I coached. And like I said, my own my own kids. And I was reading an article and I I wish I could remember exactly what it was on, Mm -hmm. Um, but it was kind of an aha moment for me. And um, I became fascinated by it. And then the more I coached, the more I saw that there were so many athletes that just couldn't get out of their own way. And, you know, I just, I wanted them to give the, I wanted to give them tools, you know, outside of the technique based stuff. I want to give them the mindset tools to be their best. Um, and I, I really, it, it always made me sad to see athletes go through what I went through. Um, and there's so many life lessons um, that I teach, you know, through this mental training and mindset work as well. Right. Um, and then in addition, you know what, there's just being on being a coach and then being on the sidelines as a parent. There's so much pressure put on today's athletes. And it makes me sad because sports are supposed to be fun. And um, it kills me to see all the tears and it kills me to see all the mental health challenges that are out there as well. So yes. I just feel like I just feel like there's a huge need for what I do and you know um absolutely. And yes, I have heard so much about that uh from friends and you know women I'm playing tennis with and men about the pressure that some of their teenagers have been facing and even middle school, you know, I mean, young. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that, that you're wanting to help others was really a driver for you to, yeah. to make this happen and to actually, you know, begin coaching in full. I mean, prof- not that you, it sounds like you were coaching your whole life, but really making yeah. this your profession and your career after having children. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, definitely. Well, I know that speak. You know, speaking of jobs and um, across major industries today, I know that you know on the job experience obviously uh, counts, but in many industries, certifications and credentials can really help distinguish individuals in their respective fields. And um, I know that you hold some credentials, and I was wondering if you could tell us when you decided to get positive performance certified and the value you see in holding the two credentials of number one, mental training coach and number two, visualization specialist. Yeah. So like I said, you know, obviously it's pretty clear now that my passion is that mental side of things. And, um, I was starting to use, um, like I said, I'm a lifelong learner. And, you know, when I wasn't on the deck coaching swimming or, um, you know, working with my own kids, I was constantly like listening to podcasts and um, just searching through the internet for as much information as I could get on the mental side. And I happened to come across um, the website, Positive Performance Training, which is run by um, 
Lindsay Wilson Nichols, who is now kind of one of my mentors, but she is the one that taught um, and offers the certification of the me- uh, mental training coach and visualization specialist. Um, and so I kind of was on the fence. Um, I knew I needed some sort of certification. At least I felt like I did to kind of give myself some credibility. Right. I was debating whether this was the way to go or if I should just dive in head first and go back and get my master's um, in sports psychology and, um, and do, go that route instead. So I did a little bit of research and um, most of the people that I talked to and even those that are in the industry now, both that have their like um, sports psychology degree and those that don't have all said that what really matters is the application, like knowing how to talk to your clients, knowing the tricks and, and tools to give them. Um, and if I were to go back to school, it all becomes kind of like that neuroscience piece, like understanding how the brain works, which is important. And I, But a lot of that stuff I can do on my own and find the simple explanations. And that's really all that my clients want, particularly my adult clients, the kids <laughs> right. My kids, the kids don't care. They just want, they just want, they just want the tools and, and go with it. But, um, yeah, so that's, the, yes. um, so that's how I ended up that with that. And then, um, the visualization piece is such an important part of mental training that, um, that was another certification that Lindsay offered. And it's just, it's nice to have that in my back pocket. So it's a, it's one of my favorite things to do with my athletes. So it's a huge, um, it's huge to have. Right. And I know that often with certifications and credentials, you know, if it's not a formal quiz or exam that you have to take, you know, there's, there's an assessment, you know, to ensure that you've, you know, learned uh, whatever that material is that you've been taught. And I think yes. just getting that confidence and having that uh, as well, you know, just, yeah, as you were saying, it does give you credibility. Um, so, Let's delve a little bit into the mental side of sports and, and competition. And I've got a few related questions. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, what are some of the most common mental barriers that you've seen tennis players and other competitive athletes exhibit that hold them back when they're competing? And can you give us an example of how a tennis player could use a visualization technique to address one of those barriers? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's so many different mental barriers, but I think, um, I think the most common ones that I see are, um, you know, the self-talk, the self-doubt, nerves, um, fear of failure is a huge one, um, fear of making a mistake, um, fear of letting, like we talked um, fear of letting teammates down, for example. Right. Um, Right. So I think, you know, one like so visualization, the beauty of visualization and the brain is that the brain doesn't know the difference between what is real and what isn't real. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you visualize and it's kind of like, you know, when you go to a scary movie and the person jumps out from behind the closet or and you kind of everybody jumps. Yes. I mean, that's that's the process of that's where the brain doesn't know what's real and what's not real. So um, visualization works the same way and it triggers the same neurons and everything that um, that gets triggered when you're actually in the moment and doing an activity. So um, 
let's say, uh, you know, fear of failure, oh, excuse me. So let's talk about, let's fear of failure is a very big barrier. So what you can do with visualization is um, you need to visualize yourself being successful. Um, and you have to see yourself being successful for, before you can be successful. So let's say you're having trouble winning tiebreakers. So a tennis player then would start visualizing the tiebreaker, but you just don't want to see yourself playing the tiebreaker in order for like visualization to be um, really effective. You need to like incorporate all five of your senses. So you need to like take yourself to where that tiebreaker would be. You know, is it warm or is it cold outside? Is it windy? Is um, what does it smell like? Wow. Um, I don't know if it would taste like anything or not. Um, <laughs> you know, how do you, how do you feel? And then start from there and then, you know, see yourself, you know, serving in the tiebreaker and play each point, point by point by point. And if you, sometimes you will find yourself when you get really into it, you might make a mistake in the tiebreaker, mm -hmm. go back and fix the mistake and play that point as if how you wanted it so you want to see everything you want to see yourself making a shot so you go point by point shot by shot and you take yourself through that whole tiebreaker and you see yourself on the other end of that tiebreaker winning it okay. and winning the match okay wow so you're saying so, that that technique is something that a tennis player could do in advance of a tiebreaker you're saying that you could that that it that is a, a suggestion from you to to address the fears and the anxiety that someone would yes. have. And yes, so definitely. and the thing is about the visualization piece though that is not something that you can just do like the day before a match or the day <laughs> of the match. I mean you want to do it then, but just like physical training, anything, any of the tools that I offer, particularly the visualization, it requires reps and consistency too. So, you know, it's like it's like going to the gym for your brain, right? You don't just go to the gym once a week and see results. You really have to get those reps in and you need to be consistent with it. Yes. So, and I, I have to tell you, I've been playing now. I'm, I'm doing USTA. I'm a 3-5 level. I've been playing for almost 10 years now. And I have never tried that. So that is something I'm going to try. Um, just hearing that tip uh, from you. And um, thank you for explaining yeah, and I'm going to, um, in fact, when we finish up here, I am going to record a general guided visualization that I'll send to you that you can share with your listeners. Oh, awesome. Awesome. So, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, oh, thank you. That's awesome, Amy. Thank you so much. Um, we yep, would love to do that. Um, let's see. So obviously the skill of visualization then, it's it's often, it's important, and um, I know it's often connected to the practice of mindfulness. And I've heard about mindful meditation and mindful-based stress reduction programs. But I understand that your coaching approach includes mindfulness and that you have a specific offering, the Mindful Competitor Project. So I wanted to ask you if you could tell us more about how you're teaching athletes and their coaches about mindfulness and how it can help them take their games and their teams to the next level. Yeah, sure. So so there have been a lot of studies out there regarding mindfulness and um, and how it affects you know, athletes and, and like just everyday life. So they found that, you know, it reduces stress and it helps increase your focus and your concentration. And it also promotes self-awareness. So I think in sports and, and tennis, 
Um, I think the stress and the focus, you know, speak for themselves. The less stress and the more focused you are, the better you're going to perform, right? Right. Um, where meditation seems, or mindfulness, I should say, really helps, has helped myself and the clients I work out with is um, that self-awareness piece. Because as I tell everybody, you really need to recognize when you are not focused and you need to re- recognize when you are stressed and what triggers that stress. You know, you can't change something and you can't change your mindset unless you know what you're changing and unless you know what you're thinking. There's so many people out there. I'll be like, so, so what were you thinking about during practice? What were you saying to yourself? And they're like, well, I don't know. So, so the mindfulness piece to me is the practice of learning to pay attention and learning how to choose what you want to focus on. So, you know, I have my athletes and I talk to coaches and team, you know, about doing this as well. Um, I, it's an exercise I call reflect and rephrase. So after a practice or a competition, I have them write down at least five to 10 things that went through their head during that practice or competition, whether it's good or bad. Mm-hmm. Um, the positive stuff, um, I have them put in what I call a confidence journal, um, and the negative stuff, they have to rephrase it to a more positive um, saying or to at least a neutral saying. They just need to get like the negative out of the way. So if they were like, I was terrible today. I sucked. <laughs> they, they could turn it into it wasn't one of my best days. I need to, you know, serve better. I mean, right. that comes off a lot better than saying <laughs> Right. Well, I was terrible. Right. Yes. So, yes. Um, and what's amazing is that I have them do this and they come back to me and they're like, they can't believe the things that were going through their head and how negative they were. And then in addition, they report back once they are able to catch themselves doing this and to change those negative thoughts into more positive or neutral thoughts how much easier it is it is to push themselves through like challenging practices and competitions. So, you know, awareness is kind of just the key and mindfulness helps us keep, a, keep us in the present moment and keep us focusing on what we need to and bring our attention back. Absolutely. And the idea that's, that's coming across to me as well right now is thought work, you know, being aware mm-hmm of yourself, as you're saying, and that, and that's the mindfulness. And I think so many of us, especially today in this, you know, hurried world, uh, and everybody's at such a fast pace. And of course, you know, that we've had the added uh, stressors of the, the global pandemic situation that we're in, but it seems that people are moving so fast. And I think that in in that sort of realm, uh, you're going to see people who are unaware um, because they're racing uh, through through life, so to speak. So I thank you for um, talking about how that practice and being mindful can help athletes and tennis players. And so that, that's great to hear. Um, I know some of our previous podcast guests have spoken to the fact that sports psychologists are often hired by professionals on the ATP and WTA tours and even work with younger elite players. And I know you mentioned, I think you said that there, that when you were playing in college, there wasn't necessarily at that time at Chapel Hill a, a big focus with sports psychology. But um, do you think that mental training is important for tennis players of all levels or just at the most advanced levels? And like, 
what age do you think mental training should begin in the game of tennis? Yeah. So, you know what, I think mental training, no doubt. I mean, I think it's actually really important for players of all ages, all levels and all abilities. Um, and particularly now, I mean, there's so, you know, there's so many pros, there's so many programs out there. Um, there's so many people that are looking just to get an extra edge and, you know, you can get technique, 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 but, you know, if you don't have your mind in the right place, all that technique work and practice really isn't going to pay off. Um, in addition, like the younger kids, I just, you know, we can help them too, you know, with this whole thing with that growth mindset, I think is so important. And so much of the work that I do um, is also working on that growth mindset and giving these kids um, the tools to know that they can do anything they put their mind to um, and the confidence that they need to grow into strong and functioning and happy adults. Um, I think the younger we can start with that, the better across the board. And then as they get older and better, um, I just think, you know, that self-talk piece and being able to stay in the present moment can help with the anxiety that we're seeing. Um, right. I think, you know, I think, particularly for the younger kids as well. You know, there's so many overbearing parents and coaches out there. Um, they, they just need someone to kind of decompress with and right. to give them the tools to be able to get through all of that. And then, you know, and then with the better players, you know, um, the college level players, right. so many of these kids go through, um, they all they're all the best where they came from. And then they're thrown into onto a college team, right? Right. And everybody's the best. Right. They've never been given the tools to handle it. Exactly. So, I have, um, yes, I have known of that instance. I, I grew up in a, in a small town and I've seen that play out where people were sort of the big fish in the, in the smaller pond. And then when they got to co the college level, they didn't see that success because they weren't able to, to cope mentally and, and to right. think about it correctly right. to, to help. But I think even like the adult tennis player, like, you know, you're like your 3.5s and the 4.0s and the 2.0s, I think they can all benefit from it too. Cause again, some of, so much of this is just kind of the awareness and being aware of what your body is doing. And instead of getting upset when you hit a serve into the net, being able to kind of take that breath and say, okay, that's in the past. We need to move forward. You know, what can I do different the next shot instead of getting all, it's like, oh my God, here it goes again. Or I can't serve. I mean, there, there's, yes, no, nothing good is going to come out of that. You so. know, yes. And, and you, <laughs> interestingly enough, and uh, since you are a Tar Hill and I attended the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill as well, um, it's funny, but I am going to bring up Mike Krzyzewski, um, the you know, basketball coach from Duke the, and coached the Olympic teams. And I read somewhere where he was asked what makes the difference between the true champions, you know, of the Olympic, Olympic athletes, you know, the dream team and all of that that he coached. And he said that the true champion players have a next play mentality. And I think that probably reflects the, the, the exact type of mindset you're talking about. It's move ahead, do better. 
the next play, you know. Um, so I, I just remembered that. So I thought I'd yeah. throw that in. No, but and absolutely. That is that is the key. It's like you can't get caught in the past and you can't get caught in the future. And you just got to um, you just got to keep plugging away and, and be in the present. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, th- speaking of um, the Tar Heels and, and ACC tennis, um, I wanted to share a quick uh, personal anecdote with you and get your um, feedback about it, and it relates to team tennis. Um, A few years ago, my husband and I had the pleasure of watching the ACC men's singles tennis finals that were being played here in Cary, North Carolina at the Cary Tennis Center, which is a fabulous uh, facility, by the way. But um, it was UVA versus Wake Forest, and the two teams were tied. It came down to the final singles match that was being played by the two number five singles players on those teams. Both teams and all the fans, including us, were gathered around that court watching that final match. And in the end, the UVA player, and if my memory holds correctly, it was the UVA player, he double faulted to lose the match, and his team therefore lost the tournament. And in that pressure moment, he double faulted, and then he fell immediately to his knees crying, and his coach and the other guys on his team immediately you know, walked onto the, coach, the court to console him. And I'll never forget that moment. I'm sure he will never forget that moment. But I'm mentioning it now because that um, I myself and so many others who I know have expressed that that we do feel extra pressure when playing doubles versus singles and when playing on a team. Um, you know, and I think you had you touched on this before, but that pressure of not wanting to let the other player or the other players down on your team. Do you have advice for how an individual can change their mindset to ease that pressure that that one can feel when you're competing as part of a team versus on your own? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a tough one, and I get asked that a lot, um, particularly when I'm working with individuals um, that are part of the team. And um, when you're telling that story, I just <laughs> my heart just sinks because I can, I can picture the whole situation. (laughs) It was, mm -hmm. um, what a tough, tough spot to be in. Um, so I think pressure, I think the pressure comes from the feeling that you have to like prove yourself. And when you feel like you have to, you know, when you feel like you have to prove yourself to others, you're kind of giving your power to someone else. Right. So um, I like to look at it as like pressure is a privilege. Um, You know, it means you have the guts to do something that is putting you in a situation to feel pressure. So what I tell a lot of my clients is that you really need to lean in it, lean into that pressure, you know, and you need to to basically, you know, don't try to hide from the pressure. Don't be like, oh, my God, I feel this pressure. Why is this happening to me again? I think you recognize it. You, you say, okay, I'm feeling this pressure. I'm feeling nervous. I'm worried. I'm going to be letting, you know, my teammates down. But then remind yourself that you have the courage to face that pressure and look at it as a challenge. Um, your brain loves challenges. So um, anytime you can put a situation and look at it as, as a challenge, you're always going to be better off. And yes. Then, yes. I get it. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was saying, sorry to interrupt. I I get what you're saying. I'm I'm hearing this and liking it. Continue. Yes. Yes. And then I was going to say, 
you have to remind yourself that that how you play and what you do on the court or on the field of competition does not define you. Um, and remember that your partner and your teammates are feeling the same way. So your partner doesn't want to let you down any more than you want to let them, them down, right? So right. Um, no one ever wants to let their team down. So you really need to focus on what you can control. So again, I go back to that visualization piece. Um, visualize your response to pressure. You know, put yourself in that situation and see yourself responding in the way that you want to perform under pressure. Um, and I also think, you know, some of it is on the coach, like in big team sports now in tennis, like if you're on a team, I don't know if you have a coach or not, but some of it um, is on the coach for the culture that he creates. And, you know, it's up to him to create that supportive culture that believes in teamwork and, and whatnot. Right. Right. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm getting it. I'm understanding what you're saying. And, and I have never thought about visualizing, uh, you know, that, that you could visual, visualize yourself responding to pressure in a way that's better. So that there, that's something that's enlightening for me. Thanks for sharing that tip. Um, you know, when it comes, speaking of, you know, pressure, um, I know that, uh, when it comes to losing or being down in tennis, they're actually a different variety of those instances. Uh, for example, like with the UVA player, he obviously he double faulted and that equated to the end of the match in the tournament uh, for them. And that was a big mistake and a, a monumental moment. But I feel like more often tennis players are making mistakes where we still have to keep on fighting. Um, like if we lose a tiebreaker in the first set and then we've got to keep playing and win that second set or if we're down like 2-5 in the first set and you want to win the set, you've got to keep going. So do you have any advice for how tennis players can build mental resilience to face those like need to come back type of moments? Because I feel like those happen more often than those hugely you know, mon monumental <laughs> mistakes like the, the poor the poor. ACC guy did had that day. Right, right. Yeah. So, um, you know, one of my favorite sayings is to, um, is to be where your feet are. So meaning that when you lose that tiebreaker, um, it's in the past, there's not much you can do about it. You can't go back and change it and you don't want to waste your energy going back into the past. So you just need to let it go. So don't let, when you make a mistake or when you lose a set or a tiebreaker, you just need to let it go because if you don't let it go, you're going to let it beat you twice. So because you let it beat you the first time and then your mind's going to go there and it's going to get in the way of doing what you need to do. So um, you need to kind of reset, um, keep yourself in the present moment and keep thinking like point by point, shot by shot. Um, and you can't say and at the same time, you can't get caught up in the future either because that's not going to help you. You have no control over the future and what you're doing right in the present moment is actually going to affect how you act in the future. So there's no point in worrying about that either. Right. So a couple of things that um, I have people do to help them kind of stay where their feet are is, um, again, it goes back to that mindfulness piece. They first have to recognize the fact that they are lost control or that they are in a bad spot. So um, there's something called the traffic lights. So, you know, if it's green, you're in a great place, right? So you, you're ready and you're going to fly through 
um, fly through that traffic light. So yellow is kind of your warning signs, right? So if you see a yellow light, usually you slow down and you're in a caution state, like you're a little heightened, right? Right. And then the red light is you've totally lost it. You've totally lost your focus. You just, you know, nothing's going right. So the key is to recognize when you are in these yellow and red states. And then um, I have them come up with a reset word. So they recognize that they're not in a good spot mentally and they come up with a reset word. So it could be anything. It could be stop. It could be focus. It could be a phrase like um, stick with it. Uh, let's go, whatever it is, it can be whatever, whatever resonates with them. So they recognize that they're in that yellow or red traffic like phrase. They say that reset word. And then some people will even, um, like do some sort of motion. So, um, they could take their tennis racket and kind of just swing it. Like they're hitting that, that bad thought and that yellow light away. Um, you could stomp on, um, a spot on the court. Um, that's another thing you can do. And then you just, you walk over, you know, you do, you take the next point and do it all over again. So, um, everything, you know, and take a deep breath. Breathing is huge. Breathing, um, I'm a big believer in that breathe through the nose, out through the mouth type of thing. Um, I also think that routines are huge too. So, you know, do the same thing before every serve. Like if you watch the professionals, a lot of them will bounce the ball a certain amount of times Mm -hmm. and then they'll take that deep breath. Part of that is just, it, it helps takes away uh, what we call decision fatigue, right? So the less you have to decide, the more energy you have for keeping your focus where it needs to be. Where it needs to be. Speaking of uh, those types of routines, of course, you know, I am married to a Spaniard. I'm a huge Rafa Nadal fan. And I know Rafa has, you know, he's almost been made fun of in instances because of his quirks and routine you know before serving yeah. and you know sometimes he's down to the wire with the, the the time clock before he serves doing it but interesting to hear you explain that and and telling and letting our listeners know that those sorts of routines can help the mind rest and 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 help you put your more energy and focus into the points so that's yeah exactly yeah. so that's yeah cool. I mean that's a whole a lot of times when I'm working with clients, I'll do, you know, like one session will be all on that traffic light analogy that I used. And then another session will be completely on routines and and whatnot. So it's huge in, in the sports to come up with those things. Right. Well, what about, you know, player confidence or their mindset in practices and then versus the match? You know, I've heard that a lot and I think you, you touched on it. Uh, at the beginning of our conversation, but do you, do you have, you know, any tip on how someone could take if they're very confident during practice and then they feel like they just collapse during matches? Is that, is that, you've mentioned the visualization, is, is that the, the correct approach? Do you have a tip on that for, because I have heard a lot of people, a lot of players say, Hey, I, I could do it. I was serving great in practice in the warm up, And then I don't know what happened. <laughs> They'll say. So. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I hear this all the time. Um, you know, and again, it's, it's, I feel like I sound like a broken record, but so much of this mindset piece is being able to stay in the present moment 
and to remember that you are the story that you tell yourself. So, so many people are going to walk into the match and then they're going to, you know, warm up and they're hitting the ball great. And they like have, you know, serving better than they've ever served before. And then in the back of their mind, they start going that, well, I've been in this spot before I've served this well, I played well in warm up, and then it just goes, then I just don't know what, what I do, like, like falls apart. Well, right. you're telling yourself that story, right? So, um, and you know, in your mind, believe it or not, your mind only thinks in pictures. So if you're giving your mind this picture of you not playing well in a match, chances are you're not going to play well in that match. So again, it kind of goes back to that awareness piece. Okay. Um, and I think, I think the other thing too, that we need to remember is that, when we're playing a match, we're, um, what am I trying to say? When we're playing a match, you, you're attaching a different type of meaning to that match, right? So, you know, for example, you're playing a match and maybe someone's thought process is if I play well and I win, then so-and-so is going to think that I'm a good player and that's going to help me remember that I'm a good player and then I'm going to feel good about myself. And then all of a sudden you've kind of placed your self-worth and judgment on that match. Mm. And then your brain, when you, then your brain kind of starts looking at that match as a threat because you've placed meaning on that match. You've placed Ooh. your self-worth on that match. And when your brain starts to think, see things as threats, it goes into protection mode and that's never a good thing. So I think we need to be really, you know, and the reality is, is that no one's thinking that really. <laughs> right. Everyone, everyone, the reality is, is that everyone, the person on the other side of that net is probably just as nervous as you are. And they're probably thinking the same thing. So if you could just stop yourself from placing any type of worth or meaning on the match, then you're going to give yourself the edge over that person on the other side of the net. Right. Right. That is so interesting to hear you say, because earlier you mentioned that it's important to have a positive mindset and, and for the, for the brain to perceiver to think that you're it's facing a challenge because the brain right. likes challenges but it, it sounds like the brain doesn't like um, um in this instance when you were saying it doesn't like no. a threat so no. it's think challenge versus this is putting value into it so much that in your worth that you would it the brain would perceive that as a threatening thing and so then that's going to have negative consequences for you. So interesting. Exactly. exactly. And I think too, um, that I think we all do it. Like I've done it, um, you know, in the sports that I pursue, I've watched my kids do it is that when we get into a competition, we think that we need to be better than we are. Right. So, and the fact of the matter is, is that you can't be any better than you are. Right. I mean, <laughs> that makes sense. So like you go out there and you push pressure on yourself to be better than you were at practice the other day, but you can only be so good. Like there's only a hundred percent of you to give. You can't play at 110% because that doesn't exist. Right. So your brain doesn't like that either. So, you know, when you're saying I have to do this or I need to do this or I better play well, um, or I better not do that. Those, those are all like, Reps. Those are like deadly phrases in my eyes because it just puts that brain into a, a threat mode and 
it does not react well to that. Right, right. Oh, <laughs> my goodness. Well, I wanted to ask, I know you yourself are an Ironman triathlete. Uh, wow, that is amazing. Um, and, you know, you're the mom of four kids. I, I That is fantastic. And it's really, obviously, I'm sure has required a great deal of mental toughness and the right type of mindset. So I wanted to ask you, related to all the work that you've done and, and the, you know, your competing yourself as an Ironman. Um, what can you tell us about how all of your mental thought work and mindset work, can you tell us how that's helped you maybe outside of, of competition and outside of sports? Like, have you been able to face, you know, like a family challenge or an, another challenge just totally outside side the realm of sports because of, of, of this work that you do and this mental training? Um, yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, I feel like I use it all the time. And, um, you know, I really like this concept of kind of neutral thinking. So not being positive, not being negative, which it doesn't mean that I'm not happy. It just means that I'm just kind of right at that neutral, you know, nothing can really trigger anything type, type attitude. Um, I think it's really helped me, um, in handling my kids, particularly as they've gotten older. So, mm -hmm. um, there's, there's an equation that I like to say that like, so you're, there's an event that happens, which is something that's uncontrollable. So like with my kids, who knows what could happen, but whatever it is, it's uncontrollable for me. Like I can't go back and change it for them, you know, and chances are that they're pretty, most cases they're probably, um, flying off the handle about whatever the event what might be. Um, but the one thing I can control and I tell them as well is that they can, they can control their response and how they respond to that event is going to shape the outcome. So, I mean, I could react and like go all negative on them and yell and scream or, you know, mm -hmm. um, flip out and be anxious about, whatever it might be, and then I'm going to get a bad outcome. But right. if I can just remember that I can control my response, and like I said, I need to be where my feet are, so I can't think about what's going on in the future or what just happened. I need to keep my head where my above my feet and where my feet are and think about how to respond to the situation. It comes out so much better than letting my emotions grab hold and take over. So like even, you know, like with the election last week, it really helped me just to stay grounded um, <laughs> in terms of like remembering, like I, I get to control my response to anything that's happening right now. Um, you know, and I need to put my energy where I am right now. And um, so, yeah, you, so, yeah, so you would say then that the, the work that you've done, you're coaching individuals and, and, you know, coaches of teams and all of that, all of this work you're doing, you would say that these skills that you're imparting to others, it really can, you know, it can help a tennis player or a swimmer or, you know, another sport athlete, but it can really help you in life. That's what I think I'm hearing you say, that you feel like it's off court 
uh, goodness as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and even like the, you know, the mindfulness piece and, um, being able to recognize when you are off track and then being able to bring yourself back to the present moment. Um, I think that's huge too. And just being able to, yeah. Yeah. And be there, you know, and realize that, you know, that maybe your focus isn't where it needs to be. And so maybe it's time to take that break and, um, think about just breathing for like three minutes and get your focus back to where it is. Um, well, I hope, I hope, I hope our listeners are going to take heed. And I think a lot of them are, I know I'm going to, I know we're almost out of time. Um, I've got one last question for you related to who you turn to for mental training advice. And I was wondering, could you share the title of a book or two that you think would be a great read for individuals wanting to improve their mental game performance and, and wanting to improve? Yeah, um, man, there's so many good ones, but I think my favorite one right now is called um, Master Your Mindset by Colin Henderson. Um, it's a quick, easy read, and um, a lot of the work that I do um, is based on his on this book. Um, and I also love, um, it takes what it takes by Trevor Moad. He is, um, he works with Russell Wilson of the Seattle Seahawks and, um, it's just, it's another quick read. And he's the one that's introduced me to that neutral thinking piece about just kind of not being positive and not being negative and, and whatnot. And then I also like mind gym by Gary Mack. So, um, that's a really good one. And, um, I think passion, the, there's also one other book called the passion paradox by Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus. And, um, that's a really cool read as well. Awesome. So that's more than, more than one or two. You gave us a few there. Yeah. So I really yeah. <laughs> appreciate you, you know, letting us know, because I think it's interesting. You've accomplished so much, um, with where you are right now. And to, I always find it interesting. And I think our listeners will too, to see, you know, who you look to, um, to, you know, keep your mental training game up to yeah, speed. Absolutely. So thank you, Amy. Well, listen, uh, with that, we are at the end here of our conversation. I want to thank you for taking the time with us today. It has been a pleasure talking tennis and mental training with you. And um, I know if our listeners want to learn more about you and your work, then they can visit transcendmentaltraining.com, your company website. You got it. Yes. Okay. And um, I just want to wish you all the best for the remainder of 2020 and a great 2021 ahead. Well, thank you for having me. It's been fun. So I appreciate the opportunity. And that's a wrap. If you liked listening to this episode, don't miss visiting our website, love-lovetennis.com to check out more episodes and more content about all things tennis, because Love Love Tennis is where tennis talk starts.